Hi, I'm Randy the Recovering Addict and this is Recovery Radio. I'm Robert Smiley. I have a foundation called the Hand Up Project. We try to help people today. Now, you mentioned me going into my story. At a very early age, I was very well looked after, kind of spoiled, but I didn't really have much supervision. So I just enjoyed doing whatever I wanted. I had a tendency to steal and burglarize. It was weird because I didn't really get anything. I'd go in there and look around the house, maybe take some candy. I didn't know about money. My first burglary conviction was at age nine. Did you do this with friends? Myself. By yourself? We moved around a lot. I really didn't fit in anywhere. I didn't want to fit in anywhere. I liked what I was doing, and it wasn't much of anything outside of just checking things out. I had a a natural disposition to uh, steal, break the law, do things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. Family tried everything from, you know, the spankings and restrictions, and I'm 55 years old, so this is way back when even the metal board paddle with the holes in it (laughs) didn't work. I never really gave it up, but then at age nine, After getting the conviction, they started me in behavioral therapy. They were giving me Ritalin, and they did that for two years on such an extremely high dose. I guess it was three times the standard nowadays for hyperactive children, but we didn't know anything about it. And then all of a sudden, they just stopped it. I really didn't notice anything that was going on. All I know is that I didn't really care about life. I was just going through it every day. But then that followed into a lot of juvenile halls, being arrested, being taken away from my family, and I spent pretty much most of my younger years locked up and locked away. Did you have any anger or anything then? or just, Nope, didn't what, care. Did, did your parents work a lot? My mom would stay at home. My dad was successful. And we just, he passed away when I was 11. I was a bad egg. I did things wrong. I didn't really care. I didn't know how to care. Well, what kind of uh, ground rules did you have? Were you, were you allowed just to run around the neighborhood? And I, I did. had strict parents. I mean, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere. My dad was very controlling. Well, we had quite a few kids in the house. Uh, there was like five or six of us, and it's yeah. just it's kind of hard to keep track of me when I'm very sneaky at that age. I learned how to be sneaky. I think that's when my addiction started was I didn't want to conform. But I don't know for sure. All I know is as a child, I was uh, selfish, very selfish. I didn't really care about anybody. I didn't understand caring or those type of feelings or emotions. And I continued that throughout my uh, teenage years being locked up or incarcerated. And coming into an adult, I ended up getting arrested and doing some serious time down in Carson City, Nevada. And while in there, even though I was introduced to alcohol Bruno and drugs, I didn't use them. I didn't want to be out of my senses. It was a very trying time, and it was very violent. And I got out of there, came up here, and got arrested again. And I met my wife three days before, and we got married over the telephone and just started our life together with me in prison. How old are you at this point? 22. From there, it I got into sales, door-to-door sales, which is basically a bunch of lying and manipulating. And I got really good at it, made tons of money. I had caused a lot of harm in people's lives from my prison sentence prior to that down in Carson City. And I couldn't deal with it. And so I started drinking. I had lots of money, so I drank a lot. 
and I found that that would kill the daymares, the nightmares, all that stuff. And so I did that for several years until I found crack cocaine. Found crack cocaine, took all that stuff away immediately. So then started my addiction to crack cocaine for 20 years. And while doing my addiction to maintain it, I ended up hurting more and more people. Didn't care. I was selfish. It didn't matter to me, would it? I learned that we create a lot of stuff while in addiction. And so our original reason gets buried under the new reason, the new reason, the new reason, the stuff of hurting people, stealing, lying, cheating, right? And then just, you know, this kind of this perpetual state of uh, negative burial, I'd yeah. say. Now I see myself, I was just very selfish. I didn't care. All I cared about was myself. Not even my wife, and we're still together 34 years later. I got out of prison up here, went to work. Uh, selling vacuums door to door. Then I ended up getting arrested for some stuff. I actually uh, got arrested for a stolen pager. Back then, they were the thing. Yeah. They were going to give me four months in jail. And I made a stipulation that the only way I was going to plead guilty is if they were to send me to prison for a year and a day. They did some psyche vows because they didn't understand that. And they had me talking with the judge. And I just let the judge know that I don't understand being out here. I spent my life in prison, locked up. I don't know anything about paying bills, cooking for my anything. I didn't have a reputation. Nobody knew me out here. They agreed, and they gave me a year and a day so I can go into prison and try and get reevaluate what's going on. My wife didn't appreciate that, though. She didn't understand it, so she uh, filed for divorce while I was in prison. I got served, and uh, that day uh, I ended up stabbing somebody in the shoulder with a spork. For sitting in my chair in the R units. If you know anything about the R units or anything, you know that you, nobody gets a assigned seat. Nobody, you're in a different seat every time. But I was just acting out and got more time for that. That's the mentality of a jail, though, right? It's a fight for your own. You don't have much. Kind of set your own rules. Uh, what I believe is jails like to make it uncomfortable because nobody, you know, if it's comfortable, then everybody would just wouldn't care about going. So they let a lot of stuff happen that probably shouldn't. When I was doing time back in Carson City, we ran the yard. The guards didn't do anything. They'd walk by and see you stabbing somebody and just keep on walking. They wouldn't even fill out a report. The guards on the walls, they shoot your ass. <laughs> but the ones that had to walk the yard, they didn't. Nowadays, guards are on top of everything. It wasn't so much the guards that I was trying to figure out. It was society. I just didn't understand where I was going. I was lost. Yeah, getting out there is a whole different world. Huh? And then when I wasn't drinking or drugging, I had these nightmares and daymares that would happen while I was actually awake of some of the things I did to people while I was in there. I couldn't handle them. So that's why the alcohol, and then when I found crack cocaine, I don't have a wide array of different narcotics that I used over those 22 years, but crack did it. It did what I wanted it to do. And I made lots of money. I always had drugs because I was also a violent nature. I was always offered drugs to do stuff. So, and it just continued on and continued on. I tried getting sober so many damn times. 12 years prior to this, I tried going to AA and going to meetings and all of that. And it just wasn't working. They said, keep going to the meetings until you hear your story. And 12 years going in and out, in and out. I never heard my story. And all I did was victimize the people that were in the meeting rooms. I was a dirtbag. I was complete and didn't care. I didn't, I don't have emotions like that at the time. Yeah. I just kept going through it and going through it and doing drugs and doing drugs and uh, got to the point where uh, 
I was just tired. I was tired of it. My wife was at home. I wasn't allowed to be around there because we were at the in-laws. I wasn't allowed in the house. They were raising a young girl, and she was very smart and intelligent. Didn't need to be around a drug addict. So I wasn't allowed there. And I kept trying detox and treatment. They weren't working. This last time, I decided enough was enough. I had heard enough people in this program say that they did. They started out just saying they're going to do a year and a day. After that, they're going to party their ass off. And I made a decision that I was going to do that. And I even shared it in meetings. I'm only here for a year and a day, and then I'm going to party my ass off. But I know from my past that the only way that's going to happen is if I do the program the way it was written Mm -hmm. and quit taking control of my recovery. And then it just... God put it in my path. I went into a meeting with some old timers and one of them said, Robert, if you're tired of failing at this program, you might want to actually try this program. And that really sunk in and hit home because as soon as he said that, every single time that I tried to get sober, I recognized when I took control of my recovery, I was going to do it my way. Or stuff that they said I needed to do that I just didn't think was that important. But because I made a commitment to myself, I was going to do this program exactly the way it was written. I was going to prove everybody wrong. So I started volunteering, emptying garbage, volunteering at the intergroup, answering phones, going to meetings, taking meetings into the Fairfax Detox, and got enrolled in outpatient services, and I did whatever people were telling me. And it was really kind of upsetting after a couple months because my life was getting better. And there were things that I was suggested I needed to do that I didn't think I really needed to do, but Mm. I did it, and it turned out for the better. And I was like, damn it, their way actually worked. When I got close to a year sober, I didn't care about using. I had no desire. I had gotten into professional therapy as far as for my mental state of mind. They gave me a Vistaril, which isn't really much, but it's something that I know that when I wasn't taking it, my wife would notice a difference. So I just decided, well, I don't feel anything from it. It doesn't matter what I say. She notices a difference. But to this day, I still take it. And uh, just the daymares aren't there. The nightmares. And I think a lot of that might have to do with either the medication, but also the program that I work today. Yeah. I've been able to stay sober. I just celebrated seven years. I have no interest in using. I work with people that are in desperate situations on a daily basis. They come first in my life today. I care about them more than I do myself, which is really weird. But right? yeah, you get sober and you get emotions. And then your emotions get emotions. There was time there. I was going into meetings, listening to people's stories and noticing my eyes watering. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I felt really bad and I wanted to cry. And it's like, I'm convict, yeah, 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 and all that. I was okay to have emotions, and I liked them. Right. I found that when you start making changes in your recovery and doing it, throughout my early recovery, people would bring up some of my past. Oh, you're going to this. Oh, you're going to that. Oh, you're faking. or this. I had to get away from those people. And I started going to smaller meetings where people had a lot of time. Like I said earlier, I went for 12 years and never once heard my story. This time around I realize every meeting I go to I hear my story right and the only story that is important to me is that I'm around other people when they put a drink or a drug in their body mayhem and chaos the specifics might not be the same but it doesn't have to be I'm around people that when they put something in their body 
they convince themselves that that will make them feel good. Right. That everything goes south. Well, that's what I learned in, in my recovery. It's not even just the drugs, because I remember taking the drugs, and I was like, wow, these make me feel great. But it's not even just that anymore. I, I thought when I first got clean, it was the job, it was the money, it was the stature, you know what I mean? I telling people I was an addict, I felt like I had to hide in the closet with it. I feel that kept me sick. So, like today, I choose to tell my story. I'm an open book. I wear my NA shirts. I do recovery radio. I put it on my Facebook. I don't care what people think of me. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, right? Right. So you said you have seven years now. Tell us what you've been doing with your life. In order to stay sober, they said I needed to reach out and help others. So I started trying to help people that were in addiction, go to meetings and stuff, picking them up, driving them around. And some of them wanted to get into detox or treatment. And I take them to the hospital, spend all night with them, only to have them booted out. Or I go to the hospital and figure they're going to be there all night, so I'll go home, and five minutes after I left, they release the person. It was just frustrating because these people weren't making it. Mm -hmm. So I started calling around and trying to find places that would work the program the way it's written. I can get them into detox and treatment, what kind of insurance they needed in order to do all this. Then I realized once they were getting help, they'd get out and they'd get into recovery houses, and recovery houses weren't working. They're drug dens, or they get out and they were homeless again. I ran across somebody that had a couple of clean and sober houses, and he said he wanted out of them because he couldn't manage them. They were everybody in the houses were using. He didn't know how to get rid of them. So I figured, okay, well, pay me $50 a client, and I'll run your houses. They agreed, and I went and did all that. In running the houses, I didn't like what was going on in the houses. Mm -hmm. I ended up using the $50 to buy stuff for the houses. I wanted to keep them in the internet, cable, laundry soap, coffee, and get them volunteering with me out in the community and going out in the woods. And I love setting up uh, outreaches where we go in the woods, let people know we're coming out with a bunch of resources and we'll have food and everything. They start showing up and then I get them into one of my houses. Everything kind of came together at once, so I'd, it's kind of hard to separate anything uh, it kept growing i got more houses more and more people were staying sober i found how i can get them into detox and treatment right away it wasn't around here it was out of county i just started doing that when people came out i made sure that they got enrolled in outpatient services and that they were required to go to meetings and i met with them pretty much daily i was at, at the houses i got grocery stores start donating food and now it gets such a mass amount of food that everybody eats really well but i noticed that somebody's always cooking for the whole house and it brings people out of their rooms we run into difficulties but we learn how to work through them by going to meetings or working the program through it right now it's just gotten to the point where there's so many people that have gone through the process i don't really recognize a lot of them they're nothing like when I first met him. Right. One that I hold very dear to my heart, his name is uh, Jim Snow. And he's a guy that was a drunk when I started this. He was like two years into it. And he was a drunk and he wanted to commit suicide by jumping in front of my car while I was going down Muckleteal Speedway. The only problem was I could tell what he was about to do. And so when he jumped in front of my car, I was only doing like three miles an hour. I put him in, we sat with him through the hospital, held on to him until he got a bed date. Uh, James Holdham got him in there. It was so bad that he tried taking the Greyhound three times and missed it every single time. So I just threw up my hands and put him in the passenger seat and me and a couple other guys, we drove him out there. He's been sober ever since. 
He's now a street evangelist. He gets flown and he sh he shares all over the world, Africa, India, China, and he goes Amazing. out there and he's he's very close with God now. I talk to him all the time. He and we now get so much food that we donate to his organization, which is a church down in Ballard. He doesn't mind my using all this stuff because he's grateful. Of course, grateful for God putting me in his life, he says. It's like, great, I don't get no credit. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I ain't interested in credit because that means I have to be held responsible when they don't make it. Right. Can't guarantee anybody's going to make it. I can't guarantee what I'm doing is going to work for them. But I know that I'm willing to go out there and meet with them and show them what I did. I can get anybody into detox and treatment within 24 hours. I've got it now set up so that when they come out of detox or treatment, I can get the county to cover their funding for housing for three months. And that's what we do. That way there, there's no gaps. It goes straight from detox to treatment to housing. Not going back to the street, not going back to family. I've discovered that when they go back to family, that's pretty much one of the worst things they can do because we're really good at manipulating our family and we're staying sober. They start giving stuff to us and then when we relapse, for some reason, the family starts giving us more, hoping that that's going to change our path. And it doesn't. No. But getting around a bunch of addicts or alcoholics that have failed before, and we get to know each other. I do two people per room in all my recovery houses, never more, never less. That's for isolation and accountability. And we supply everything. People come in and they realize they're a family. Nobody's different. Nobody's better. We're all here struggling. All right, so the, the Hand Up Project, is that your housing? That's the whole program. It is? That's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I've seen you on the news and uh, being recognized for going into the woods and trying to talk people into detox and stuff. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that's going right to the heart. We're doing that tomorrow. Yeah? Yeah, taking all my volunteers and whoever wants to join us. We're going out on 112th Street in Admiralty Way. There's a corner there behind the church where they had a lot of homeless activity. Yeah. And I go in there a lot, and now it's time that the sheriffs want to go in or law enforcement wants to go in and do something drastic. They let me uh, go in there and uh, talk to the people for a couple weeks. So I've been going in there, bringing food, got a couple people to detox from in there. But they all know, come tomorrow, we're going in to clean up all the garbage, all the needles, we're pulling everything out and they're not going to be allowed to stay there. They get help or they got to go. I've been criticized, people saying, well, you're just moving them around. What they don't seem to realize is when they go, we follow. <laughs> <laughs> That's our next cleanup. We go around in circles and circles and circles. I don't give up on anybody. I've had people that have tried this program several times, four or five times, and failed. I've got so many of them now that have two, three, four years sober after failing all those times, I don't give up. But I found that once people realize that I'm not here to tell anybody what to do, I want to sit in the driver's seat and experience what they're experiencing with them because it keeps it all fresh in my head. Like I said, I don't know if what I offer will help them, but I'm worth trying. Yeah, at least there's something out there for them to... To have a chance to grab a hold to instead of just being looked at as criminals. The problem is getting worse and not better. Well, exactly. I, and one of the things I, yeah. I get is I've got people that moved into my houses that have relapsed or stole or yeah. they taken stuff or they spread rumors about me or whatever. And I, next thing you know, I'm still answering the phone. 
I understand that addict in us. I don't mm-hmm. care what they do to me. If when they're ready for help, I will answer the phone. I won't even mention the past. All right. It's about today. What do you want to do? And that's one of the messages that gets out there. And I get a lot of people that have given up and thinking everybody else has given up on them too. I won't. I don't care what you did yesterday. I care what you're doing today. All right. That's huge. Not just to save you, but I got to have you in my passenger seat. That's how I work my program, helping others. Uh, something I like to kind of do at the end here is uh, kind of give a piece of advice for somebody that's struggling still with addiction or somebody that has an addict in their life. What advice would you give somebody? Contact me, 425-971-1774. Contact me. If you're family, I hope that you contact me because I'll, I'll meet with them and the, and the addict and work a program from there. If they're struggling in their addiction, they got to understand that the people in our program aren't the ones that got it right away. I failed. I've, I've upset so many people. I've, it's been hell. I've not been a good at it. But when I thought nobody was going to be there for me, there was people there. I will always answer the phone. If I don't, I'll call right back. It just means I'm on the other line. Mm-hmm. No matter who's in my program or how big it gets, it all starts with calling me. Working our way through it. I gotta let these people know they're loved. They're not alone and they're not doing anything I haven't done a dozen times. And once they realize that, that is the key. I rarely get people that it's their first time around. Kind of awkward. <laughs> I know people that got it first and it just, uh, they don't fit. It's like something's wrong with me. But the people that I've tried 15 times and failed, man, I fit right in. And those are the ones I want to help. I want the ones that everybody else has given up on. Those are the ones that makes my life worth living. Right. And most of them that are out there know that I will do that again when they're ready. I will be there. Don't give up on yourself. Know that there's other organizations. If you don't find what you need with me, uh, we've got Hope Soldiers. We've got Esther's Place. We've got the Hawthound. There are so many other organizations that want to go out there and help people. I'm not the only one. If you feel like you can't do it with me, jump on board. Just don't give up. Awesome. Well, thank you, Mr. Smiley. Appreciate I'm Robert. It. I'm just a crackhead with a car. And remember, you are better than nobody, but there is nobody better than you.